Hello and welcome to the Energy Sense podcast, where we explore the trends, people, and ideas that fascinate us in the energy industry. I'm Jason Roop, and I'm here with the Chief Energy Officer of Bowerbird Energy, usually your host for the podcast, but today we are turning it around because this is our annual, what do we call it, our holiday edition, our New Year's Yeah, just special. the end of the year recap, just catching yeah. up, giving everybody a overview of how the year went. Looking back at 2022 and looking ahead at what the next year might bring. And the really cool part about this show is that we did one last year. So I was able to look up what you said <laughs> Uh-oh. a year ago, all your predictions, and we'll see if they came true. But when I walked into the office today, I noticed that you were doing a lot of extra work. You mentioned that it's been a challenge finding people in the industry. I know that workforce issues are something that the whole energy industry is dealing with, right? Well, I think every industry in general is dealing with workforce issues. I know here recently we've seen some major layoffs at tech companies, but outside of that, it just seems like the construction space is just booming and just really it's so hard to find just talented, skilled workers because of, you know, name numerous reasons, but I think part of it is because the space has been changing so rapidly. So keeping up with that technology is requiring some newer faces. And so, yeah, it's been tough, but we're still on the hunt. And the good news is that there are jobs in the energy industry is growing. But before we get too far into this, a lot of people may not know exactly what Bowerbird is and what you guys do. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your business? Sure. So Bowerbird Energy is a design build firm focused on renewable energy and energy efficiency projects for commercial, industrial, and government clients. So Most of the time, we're going to an existing facility and doing a a retrofit or an upgrade to an existing facility and looking for ways that that facility can procure renewable energy and perform energy efficiency projects, so upgrading the lighting, HVAC, building envelope, that sort of thing. There's really a three-pronged approach. First, we still have the distribution side. Uh, You know, Veteran LED was wrapped up under Bowerbird Energy. So we still quote lighting packages and have not shut down that supply chain uh, in that part of the business at all. So Tyler and his team have been doing a great job at continuing to work the lighting side of the business that's providing product and doing turnkey lighting projects. Tyler Bell, your senior project manager. Yep, shout right? out Tyler. But the core of the business has been that design build aspect, you know, always either working closely with or having engineers on staff where we really want to dive into the technical pieces of it. That design build model just really made sense for Bowerbird as we started to evolve throughout the year. And then the other part of it is consulting. So a lot of companies come to us and say, hey, we just want to develop an energy and environmental management program. What does that look like at the program design level and implementation level? Because a lot of times that's what drives these uh, capital expense projects or these energy related projects at these facilities. Where do we start? Exactly. People may not know that you started this business yourself and it was an LED lighting company focused on retrofit and anything to do with energy efficient lighting. Yeah. At the end of last year, you made a transition where the LED lighting company became Bowerbird, which was a whole portfolio of services. And it's really been your first full year of that. Yeah, absolutely. So Veteran LED was an amazing launch pad for us to grow into Bowerbird Energy. It's different the way that we talk about it and market it now, but we still love that part of the business. I mean, that's where we got our start. So we're very in tune with the lighting space. So anything from UVC lighting and germicidal radiation lighting to 
uh, LED lighting standard commercial fixtures, or even getting into the design aspect of actually photometrics and foot candles and color changing temperatures and, and all that stuff. So it's still a thriving part of the business, but Bowerbird Energy really spoke to all of our capabilities. We were doing projects outside of lighting behind closed doors for so long. And we wanted to be able to highlight those projects so the market wouldn't really be confused of, okay, we, we thought you just did lighting. So it's been really great to be able to do that and talk about those projects and highlight those projects and really approach our clients and the market in a broader sense, but also still having the focus of energy and environmental management within this construction realm. And let me ask you a personal question about being an entrepreneur because you started the business going door to door, um, selling lighting and it was just you. And of course you've grown it and you work with a lot of contractors, you have employees now, but then another big step for you was last year when you transitioned to hundred percent ownership of the company. So what's it been like for you in this first year to have all of that on your shoulders, uh, no investors, it's, it's you and you alone and your team. Uh, what has that been like? Well, to be honest with you, initially it was freedom and then <laughs> followed closely by, I got to get to work. <laughs> <laughs> no fear? No, no, <laughs> okay, no. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was a little bit nerve wracking in the beginning, but you know, I think I said before, we had an amazing partnership with my previous partners and I still have that mentorship available to me now. And so it's been a really great and, and positive thing to continue to have that even without the financial ties. But yeah, it's it's all on me, just like it was uh, day one to make sure that, you know, we're not only focusing on the day to day and the short term aspect of the company, but also the long term and making sure that we give it everything we got and, and we get the right team together to perform these jobs and give our clients what they want. I'm going to ask you the most challenging part, but also what's been the best part about owning it everything outright? I mean, I don't really put too much thought to the ownership kind of on a, on a day-to-day basis, but I can tell you that the best part of our job is really uh, getting the, the testimonials from our clients and getting referrals from our clients. You know, a lot of people ask us how we get our business. And I just say, you know, 80% of our business is just through referrals. And I'm just so proud to be able to say that because that means that um, we're, we've done a great job with that project and with our relationships with our clients. And that's the best part. The hmm, most challenging part, that's a good one. I would say just balance. It's just a... Uh, a constant struggle, I think, to try to balance everything at once when you just have so much on your plate at times. And you really just yeah. have to get in the mindset of, I'm going to do 100% each day and I'm going to get done what I can get done. And, you know, the to do list is never over, um, but certain things do get easier as you grow. And, you know, we're certainly finding that it's a little bit more difficult to find. Uh, talented, skilled tradesmen, either in the field or or even uh, bringing people on at, at more of a managerial level, uh, just with the workforce, the way that it's been, it's just been a challenge across all industries. You also get a chance to talk to a lot of other business owners when you go to conferences, conventions, you just finished your fellowship with the Veterans Advanced Energy Project and you're back from the, what was the Energy Engineers Conference? Yep. When you get together with people who are really into this industry like you are, What's driving the conversation? Well, I think you have two main groups. I mean, with the Veterans Advanced Energy Project, that was largely policy related. And so I was able to hang out with and become friends with a lot of people that are really more focused on the policy side and looking at the federal money coming down for this industry, particularly, and then 
working at the state level and, and more of at the program development level. So they're largely talking about the political moves in the energy space. The other side of it is talking about how do we really manage the workforce? I mean, that's just, you know, it seems to be taking up the airwaves a lot, but that is what most people are talking about at the construction level and tradesman level. We think this is because of years of people pushing the narrative to go to college. That's kind of the only way to go. And looking at blue collar jobs as lower paying jobs or lower class type jobs for years. And I think, you know, we're seeing the repercussions of that. And so there's a lot of teaming going on. Companies are teaming up together uh, to be able to perform on projects better, whether that's through official joint ventures or just prime subcontracting type relationships. But people are teaming up a lot to be able to execute on some of these larger projects. And the other part of it is you're seeing how the commercial and industrial markets are acting compared to what's happening with the government side. And we're heading into what most believe is going to be a recession in the next year or two, trying to figure out how that's going to last. We've seen the markets uh, dip quite a bit, some 20% over the last 12 months. And so some people are a little bit bearish on the commercial side, whereas the government side, they're saying, oh, well, a lot of this money's coming down and you know everybody's trying to scramble and figure <laughs> out how they can get a piece of that. Right. Um, and then there's, of course, the technology. On one side, you have climate threat and more of this emotional tie to what's going on. And then on the other side, you have the markets that are just strictly looking at the numbers. And so it's it's going to be interesting to see how that all works within those two markets, either government or commercial, and what projects actually get pushed forward based on this advanced technology that we're looking at, uh, small modular nuclear reactors, for example, or battery storage you know, longer term battery storage, utility scale, wind, pro offshore wind projects like we're seeing here in Virginia. We're going to start to see how that all is actually getting paid for or what are the cost benefits as these projects move forward? Because quite frankly, they're first of its kind. We always want to press on the gas as far as advanced technology, but we also want to see how are the markets going to react to it and what's actually going to happen for the long term. And even here in downtown Richmond, not too far from us, who would have thought we'd have a news story about Dominion Energy building a parking lot for electric vehicles and charging stations? And of course, you offer EV charging as a service as well. That's a big change from last year. Well, I think EVs are another point of discussion. Obviously, there's uh, what some would see as a major infrastructure issue right now in regards to just not enough chargers available, not quality chargers aren't available, or it takes too long to charge your car up, that sort of thing. And I think they're going to need to figure out a way to bring on more chargers as that market grows. I believe EVs are something like less than 3% of the total vehicle market right now. But if you were to probably chart that graph out another five years, I think that's going to dramatically increase. But you also have to be aware on the utility side, where's that power coming from? You know, do we have coal-fired plants that are powering these uh, EV chargers that are going into your car? Do we have the capacity to be able to charge these chargers uh, in an efficient manager? Do we have a workforce and contractor network that can actually install these chargers and commission them correctly? Have we learned from maybe some mistakes that we've seen out in the field already as far as broken chargers or different ports not working for different cars or... You know, yeah, the software is down or the software is not down. You know, is it showing up right on the app? The more adverse events like that that happen, the less adoption you're going to see of the technology. And it's one unfortunate potential outcome. But yeah, it's exciting to see because we obviously get into that type of stuff being in the industry. Um, but, you know, we also don't want to 
be blind to some of the challenges that that industry has seen as well and want to make sure that we're sharing best practices and learning from those projects. It seems like there's a little bit of rushing going on without knowing some of the practical answers. There's a huge amount of money that's coming down. And there are a lot of questions about, is the money being used wisely? Are there people that know what they're doing? Are we building things correctly? And it brought to mind the project that your company had to come in and fix. Another company had installed some EV charging stations without doing the proper um what would you call it? Analysis of the yeah. So energies? I mean, we we had a client that came to us and said, "Hey, you know, our breakers keep popping every time we're plugging in Tesla number three and Tesla number four. <laughs> you know, if I got one and two plugged in, I'm fine. If I go to plug in three and four, boom, 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 all these breakers pop. Can you fix it? And it ended up being a pretty costly mistake. And this was a federal client. So these are tax dollars, right? right? So yeah, of course we're grateful for the business and we're glad they called us and we were happy to fix it, but. Again, it just highlights one of the challenges that happen in any kind of budding new industry where, you know, these practices have not been done a lot before. And so, you know, there's certain codes, right? NEC code or IBC or or whatever your authority is that guide you to do things in a certain way. But then there's also recommendations that come about when people unfortunately make mistakes and, and things like that happen. And so, yeah, we just have to learn from it. But you know, a lot of it is going to be how do we manage these programs that are facilitating this funding coming down from the federal level down to the state, down to the local municipalities? How are we actually making sure that we coordinate correctly with the utility companies and um, making sure the permitting process and the zoning process and just all the different steps that actually go into making that charger available, commissioning it and having cars come up and everybody's you know, everything's going smoothly. There's just a lot of steps in between. Yeah, let's talk about the money. So last year around this time, we had just passed the Infrastructure Act, which sent a lot of money to the energy industry. And since then, we've had the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a record amount of money for energy projects, climate change, conservation. That comes down to the states as well. So the states are having to figure out how to manage the money. And I know one of the things you've talked about is your concern for the efficiency of those projects, and then the number of organizations who are brought in to oversee the spending and the contracting and who gets the business and are enough people competing for it. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, we largely built the foundation of our company because of quote unquote money like this coming down. You know, the 2017, I believe, Grid Transformation Securities Act Out of that came about $900 million in energy efficiency program money, which has been laid out for the next 10 years. We've seen how those programs really, really work, how clients take advantage of them, how numerous contractors are allowed to participate in the programs and and actively work with clients and utilize this rebate money or bid on projects. And then we've seen how those programs fail drastically. Either they're not developed correctly, so they're not even a viable option for the client to choose from. Or, you know, even in some cases, there's been certain contractors that have been barred from certain programs, not out of that they're not capable of doing the work, but just strictly from a a program development and political shift. I want to give credit where it's due, but I also want to point out that it's very critical how these programs get developed to ensure the successfulness of the programs and, you know, Economic development authorities or economic development groups should be involved in that as well and have a say, whether it's representation 
from, you know, some type of national contractors association or program development. I, I don't know, but that part of it is so important because if certain, say for example, if certain manufacturers of EV charging stations are the only ones allowed to be used, then that manufacturer essentially has a monopoly of that market and can charge whatever they want. If there's only a you know one or two contractors that can do the work, maybe they're even coming out of state. So maybe the, all that money that's flowing down to that state is, is actually going to a company that's from out of state yeah. to either put in the equipment or as a contractor or buy the equipment from a manufacturer. And so we just want to make sure that it's fair for everyone. You know, this is not like some self-serving message or like Darbird wants to be the only one involved in these projects. Absolutely not. But we've seen where these programs don't make sense and we've seen them be successful on the other side. It's natural if you have an organization that would benefit from a program to want to see that program used by everybody. We have the money. Let's go out and do it but it may not be right for everybody. And then the other thing is pricing. You've mentioned how sometimes pricing is set in certain places for work, but there aren't contractors that can necessarily afford to do the work for that price. Exactly. So I'll give you an example. Dominion Energy ran a pilot program with the EV charging stations this year. Um, and I'm going to butcher it if I go into crazy detail, but essentially the first part of the year, they had funding set aside where you would get a rebate amount for each charger port or charging station. And so they had, I think, two manufacturers of charging stations as approved manufacturers equipment that they would use on the project to qualify for the rebate. And then outside of that, there was no contractor network that clients were getting pointed to. It was on a one by one basis. And so if a client called Dominion or the people running that pilot program, they would coordinate the whole deal. And so you're kind of like circumventing the natural course of, you know, a construction project where a client reaches out to a contractor that does the work and kind of facilitates everything. And then the client gets a, a product. They were actually quarterbacking the whole thing from the program level. We know in other programs that it's not allowed to show preferential treatment to certain contractors from folks at the program level because it's just not the right thing to do and it's not standard yeah. business ethics, right? You need to have free and open competition so the client gets the best quality product for the lowest price or whatever quality they're looking for. They want to be able to have that option. And another thing, they were also facilitating the sale of the materials. The materials actually couldn't go through the contractor where the contractor standard normally gets a little bit of a markup and kind of helps coordinate the supply chain and logistics of all the materials. They were actually taking the orders directly at that level. And so, again, it was a pilot program. You know, they're supposed to learn from it, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it raises a little bit of a red flag because now you have even more money coming down from the federal level uh, due to the IRA. And so I'm a little bit nervous to see how they actually start to try to use that money. Then there's an issue of communication too, which we've talked about and some programs that are innovative, interesting, let's say CPACE, which you had a guest on that managed the CPACE program in Virginia. And that stands for commercial property. What is it? Assessed clean energy. Okay. Yeah. It allows building owners to get certain financing for projects. And I know it was a lot of work to land that program and get it set up in Virginia. But even now, I think it's been a year, there's only been one project that's really gone through with it in the entire state. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, 
shout out to Abby. Uh, I love her. She's, she's awesome. But yeah, the CPAYS program has been very difficult to actually push through for clients to utilize them. And it's particularly centers around the financing portion, first rights to liens, that sort of thing. And so it's, it's those details about the actual buying process that everyone needs to focus on that's looking at developing these programs and figuring out ways to allocate funds because it's those little things that can stop a program in its tracks. Another example is the window film program or some of these programs with Dominion that are just not being used uh, very much because the, the rebate amounts are so small. So it doesn't even make sense to process paperwork that's going to cost you 1500 in, in man hours or whatever to process the paperwork. And it's only a $1,800 rebate. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, you have to make the program where it doesn't create an actual business, right? Like you have to make it, you're not, you're not going to cover hundred percent of everything and make it just a free program or a service. Um, but you have to do it in a way where you understand the individual steps that it takes to get all the way to the sale uh, and then understand the actual participation in the program. You know, I've talked to Bettina Bergeo at the State Energy Office and I've talked to Chelsea Harnage at the Energy Efficiency Council and some other folks. The contractors need to be the main marketers of these programs because it's going to be the hundreds and hundreds, thousands of contractors that are in Virginia that are in touch with residential, commercial, industrial folks all the time, clients all the time. They're on the talk, ground. Yeah, yeah, they're on the ground. That, so they can talk about these programs and they can talk about the benefits of these projects because when it comes down to it and I'm meeting with a client at their business, it's going to come down to the money. It's going to come down to time. It's going to come down to you know, what is the mission of, of their business, right? And contractors are the only ones that really know their clients well enough to really understand their mission, to really understand their viewpoint. They're going to be the ones that will make these programs successful because you're going to see more adoption of these types of projects when, uh, frankly, companies like ours are able to go out there with the correct information and be the one-point source for the client's to communicate, hey, you should go solar or do LED or upgrade to VRF because this, 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 and this. And by the way, 18% of the project's going to be covered through whatever program. Right. right? And you're face-to-face with them. I mean, it's not just in energy. We see this in a lot of different areas where the good intentions of the people who are creating policy, when you get down to the practical implementation of the project, when we have programs for um, people who live in disadvantaged communities and there's some great program when they can put solar on the roof or upgrade their HVAC, but they may not be able to think about that at the moment. They're dealing with job situation and children in school and grocery prices going up. Well, there's a disassociation between most people that are in the position to make these programs and people that live paycheck to paycheck. So no offense. I'm sure there's other people that are wealthy that are living paycheck to paycheck, but you get what I mean. They need to understand the mindset of the buyer. And don't get it wrong. These people are buying these services, whether they're buying it with money or they're buying it with their time. They're buying these services. We can't ask folks who are worried about an extra 50 or $75 utility bill 
to finance $20,000 worth of upgrades to their house because they want to go solar, put in heat pumps or, or whatever, electrify everything. They're already in a disadvantaged community. They're already at a disadvantage. Yeah. We can't ask them to uh, take on debt, uh, which some people are asking uh, in certain cases, to finance new appliances in their house, switching them from gas to electricity or putting in a heat pump or putting solar panels on the roof. Yes, we understand as energy conservation specialists and environmental management specialists, we understand all of the ancillary benefits to clean energy, you know, indoor environmental quality, clean air that these folks are breathing, reducing uh, safety risks with using gas appliances and things like that. So we understand that, but that's not something that these folks can quantify on a day-to-day basis. That's not something they're thinking about. And rightfully so. They're worried about putting food on the table and paying their bills and not getting in a crazy amount of debt. Switching gears to businesses that are thinking about their energy use, you had mentioned a year ago that you saw more people were thinking about their carbon footprint, more companies were starting to dig down into the numbers and metrics about how they used energy. Did you see that come true? Well, I think because of policy, you're seeing this forced upon businesses particularly in places like New York with Local Law 33 or Local Law 87, uh, Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia with the building energy performance benchmarking requirements for buildings. So I think policy is making people think about it now. I also see clients and other businesses you know, downstream that are concerned about it. So say, for example, you have a manufacturer that has a client reach out to them and say, you know, we want to know the carbon footprint of our end product you make a little widget that goes in our end product. So we need to know the carbon emissions of that. And so manufacturers, uh, usually when these are large clients that they do a lot of business with, they they start to figure out a way to do that. And so, yeah, we are seeing an uptick in companies wanting to understand their carbon footprint, first, second, third scope emissions, understanding all the trucks that are out on the road, what type of emissions are they putting off? Different manufacturers or vendors and things that we deal with. Are they environmentally conscious? Are they doing things to go to clean energy and that sort of thing? So I think it's largely been driven by policy. And the environment has taken over the airwaves over the last couple of years. I think with the Biden administration being in power and the IRA uh, coming down, you know, rightfully so, it's just been a topic of conversation. So I think it's at the top of a lot of people's minds. And particularly if you are a complete believer in climate justice, climate threats, all that stuff, you know, this is definitely at the top of your list. And one of the services that Bowerbird performs is, let's say a manufacturer makes 10 things for 10 different people. Company C wants to know how much energy are you spending to make item number three? So you somehow go in and are able to study that process and tell them exactly what amount of power each item takes. Yeah. So whether whether you're an office building or a big warehouse or a manufacturing facility, you're using utility resources, energy resources to do whatever it is you're doing. With the manufacturer's case, they're making a product. So there's machines that make that product. And so, yeah, a lot of times there's a lot of data that's already on site that's captured through other systems, whether it be, you know, the brains of a piece of manufacturing equipment or the brains of your HVAC system. So we utilize what's there already. We put a connected system on top of that bring it back to the cloud, run some algorithms and out onto a dashboard will tell you exactly what you need to know. 
And that dashboard is customized on the front end when we start having the conversations because we don't want to give somebody 100 data points when they really only need three, right? Right. So it can get as detailed as a facility engineer looks at this screen every single day and makes adjustments or as simple as uh, someone gets a two-liner email with a one-page report every month. If you're going to make changes, you have to have a goal in the baseline and then you'll come back later and see how it improved. Yeah. And it's not just for, you know, carbon emission reporting as far as like requirements of different policies and things like that. That's certainly a part of it. But we're also seeing this service come about when we're in initial discussions with companies that have a little bit of a budget to spend on getting that report on the front end and saying like, okay, where are we? Let's do a benchmarking study or an energy audit to figure out where we are currently with our carbon footprint and, you know, aligning it with our internal program or some third party program that we've, you know, assigned ourselves to. From that, we always recommend, look, we don't want to come in and do this if you guys don't have some sort of commitment on the back end to actually take some action, right? Because then, you know, we're going to do this all over again next year. Right. So we make sure that they have a budget to actually take some action and get some things done. And we come up with that plan after we get that data. and then. The ongoing service is really key for them because it could be as simple as just getting a one-page report saying, this is where you were, this is where you are, here's the difference and changes. And we were able to accomplish that by doing this, 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 and this. Setting your thermostats back, putting in LED lighting, whatever the case may be. Looking ahead to 2023, I know you've been doing a little bit more government work, maybe than you even anticipated coming into the year. So that's probably going to be a big thing for you this year, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, we started the company in 2014. We got our first federal contract in 2015, very small, uh, (laughs) but we got it going. And then Gift and the Curse, we were very busy on the commercial and industrial side doing lighting projects for quite a few years. And so we really just did projects that fell in our laps. We weren't really out there trying to actively develop business in the government space. But this year it was different. You know, we were awarded a contract with the Air Force and still active on on that. We have a few other clients in the Tidewater area. But, you know, we started to see a lot of traction actually going ahead and just performing your standard MEP, mechanical electrical plumbing, O&M services hmm. uh, for clients. So whether it was some periodic maintenance checks or, you know, swapping out filters or cleaning coils or cleaning dryer vents or whatever it was, just to gain the relationship and build that relationship with the obvious intention of later on trying to get the client to move on a design, build, renewable energy or energy efficiency project of a larger scale. But it's also been great because it gives us a chance to get on site, learn the systems even more in depth, build a relationship with those clients, kind of create that value. And so once we were able to get on site at a few of these locations and build that past performance up. The government really loves past performance. (laughs) So the more contracts, even, you know, it doesn't matter the dollar amount, the more contracts you can point to and relationships you build, uh, it's just like anything else. And so, yeah, we've been service disabled veteran and small business since 2015, but we were actually just awarded our first hundred percent set aside contract, meaning they contracted with us in part because of that designation. Um, So I feel like after seven years of, um, doing a bunch of paperwork and being <laughs> compliant with that, we finally may have paid for itself. It's paid off. And it, <laughs> you know, it's also been interesting to watch some of your clients grow. I think of 
the Silver Diner restaurant chain. And last year we were talking about coming out of the pandemic and what that meant. And you really got connected with them because of the pandemic and you needed to help them create these healthier dining areas with UV lighting and better HVAC filtration. And you're still working with them. They just opened up what by the Nationals ballpark. They just opened a restaurant and you guys did the work in there. Yeah, absolutely. No, they've been an amazing client. Shout out to Mark Russell and Eric Ford and Robert and Ipe and all of them. And I find myself going to the Silver Downer more in, in the West End. Just <laughs> you better. Um, but no, they've they've been amazing. And it's been really great to help them on multiple fronts, not just with the UVC lighting and the air quality projects, but just continuing to work with them on their energy needs, uh, HVAC lighting across everything. And so it was really cool when they opened up the brand new spot up by Nationals Park. Yeah. Um, very excited for their growth. And I think they're going to continue to to grow and open uh, a lot more stores. I won't give their goodies away, but I think they're going to continue to grow uh, yeah, quite tremendously. If you find yourself in a silver diner, do you have a recommended <laughs> dish that you uh, tell people to try? Yeah, I get the huevos rancheros the, uh, with, the, <laughs> nice. with the bison bison oh, meat yeah that sounds it's amazing. Uh, it's really good it's you think about silver diner and you think like just diner food it's so the opposite of waffle house it's like it's fine dining farm it's and stepped table, up yeah uh, just in a diner setting with diner prices and if you're in dc then you can watch the baseball game too while you're eating that. yeah the other thing you were kind of right about this you said one of the things you'd be watching in the coming year this was you know last year was the controlled environment agriculture space and more interest in that. And we just had a, here in Virginia, there was uh, plenty announced back in September, a $300 million vertical farming campus. And we're seeing those pop up in different places across the country. So that definitely seems to be happening as well. Yeah. I'm sure the folks at Plenty didn't come up with that idea overnight after they listened (laughs) to my podcast. Uh What? Um, I had the idea first. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just a really cool space. I mean, I'm personally interested in it. You know, I just find it very fascinating, uh, that indoor agriculture is a very energy intensive process and how these crops grow and how healthy they are directly related to that, uh, environmental quality that they're in. And that falls on the engineer's hands and the facility operator's hands. And so I just find it very fascinating from a technical aspect, you know, also from a social aspect of folks having access to nutritional foods and healthy foods, that are locally grown, locally sourced. I think that's just personally important uh, to a lot of people out there. And this is going to create so many jobs too in this area. I'm also going to predict that we were going to see much more of your theme from the summer event that you did, the panel discussion on advanced energy and national security. We have the war continuing in Ukraine. Energy policy is one of the biggest issues that's going to probably be part of the next presidential election. We're all seeing gas prices up, and there's just a big discussion about energy policy. And we saw how exactly it's connected to security of the country, which is what you always used to talk about. We've just seen the ripple effects from what's happening uh, in Ukraine and Russia. Also, you know, the U.S. exporting uh, LNG to countries like Mexico and, and Europe. And then also we're not producing as much energy as we were here. We also see the shakeup with OPEC and the Saudis. You know, I personally don't agree with a lot of the decisions that have been made at the higher levels in regards to energy. I think we need to focus on having reliable, affordable energy uh, everywhere for everyone, because if not, the entire economy is going to feel the ripple effects. We were actually brokering an energy deal 
a couple of weeks ago and the client was asking why are the prices higher and they mm. previously they were in a 12 month contract and we're trying to renew their contract and it's like well gas prices have gone up 300% since January of last year you know we just start rattling off all these statistics of why the price fluctuations of energy have been so dramatic and it's kind of like, you know, when is it going to stop? When's the bleeding going to stop? When are yeah. we just going to start seeing some type of consistency? Whether that's, you know, low rates, high rates, medium rates, because as long as you have that inconsistency, you have uncertainty. And when you have uncertainty, normally you have volatile markets. And for a lot of companies, energy is a very, very high expense. I mean, take Silver Diner, for example, they have 24, 25 locations, you know, aside from just direct labor. They use a lot of energy yeah. across their portfolio. And so I think as we see the economic downturn a little bit over the next 12 to 24 months, you know, heading into a recession, we're going to start seeing companies try to figure out ways that they can get strategic with saving money. And I think a lot of them are going to look to energy efficiency um, and really trying to streamline those operational maintenance of their buildings to reduce that overhead and that cost directly related to energy. Because they might not be selling as many units, but if they can maintain a little bit higher profit margin, then their net margin will be roughly the same. And so I think that operational efficiency, and obviously we're well suited to you know, be in that space and help them out. Anything else you're thinking about when you look at the new year ahead? Again, I think in Q1, we're really going to start to see how some of these programs are going to roll out with the funding coming down from the Inflation Reduction Act. We're going to start seeing... Towards the end of next year, who's going to be participating in that? How are the markets reacting and going through seeing the successes and the failures, I'm sure, of that in this unprecedented time that we're in? But I think the government will continue to do what they do and plug away uh, as far as their contracting and infrastructure efforts. Luckily, we're well positioned to be in a good space. And hopefully with our teaming partners and our other partners across the industries, we can help each other and do pretty well. And one positive thing is there are companies like yours that can help other companies make sense of it all because not everybody's in this space, but they know that energy is an important issue for their business. They may not know where to start, but they can call you and say, what do I need to do first? <laughs> yeah. Help me bring this bill down. Absolutely. <laughs> and and another thing, um, you know, not necessarily the direct path for us, but we've also teamed up with other large contractors quite a bit to really help them understand how they can sell more energy efficiency projects and renewable energy projects, just with the attention to detail and the transparency and really the understanding of all these uh, financial incentives and, and different nuances of these energy projects. We've helped them be able to sell more projects and then they can team with us and we can, you know. And you're looking for contractors uh, all yeah, the time, right? We are. I mean, we, we have you. great partners right now. Shout out to James at, at Southern Companies. But we're always looking for different companies that are in different trades, that are different sizes, located in different areas, because we can't all be at the same place at once. And we need to be flexible for our clients to be able to perform on these contracts. I guess that wraps it up for us. We wanted to say also thanks to the listeners of Energy Sense, everybody who's checked in on our episodes through the years. I think we're going to hit 30 episodes soon. If not, I haven't counted. I mean, time flies when, when you're <laughs> having flies. fun, Jason, doesn't it? Not that I'm counting. Right? <laughs> Thank you to everyone that has supported us all year long with the rebrand of Bowerbird Energy. I know it was uh, a bit nerve wracking in the beginning. 
big changes, but it's really been fun educating everyone around us on kind of what we do now and our expanded services and helping us, you know, build our new team out here in Richmond. Uh, it's just really been great. And we're just very thankful for the support. And thank you to everybody that uh, tunes into the Energy Sense podcast. I know we, we started this thing off as, you know, just trying something new, right? Uh, no no expectations. Pilot program. Yeah, pilot <laughs> program that, that took off. We have a lot of great guests coming up, but we're also open to hearing your ideas for content. Or if you think there's somebody fascinating that we should bring in for an episode, please let us know at info at bowerbirdenergy.com. That wraps it up for us. I'm Jason Roop here with Chris Rawlings, Chief Energy Officer of Bowerbird Energy. We appreciate you listening. Make sure you subscribe to Energy Sense from your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss our newest episodes. And Happy New Year. We'll see you next time. Bowerbird.